Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today. And with me, as usual, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Hello. This is episode number 89 of the Malthouse Games Podcast. We are a podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, tabletop games of all different sorts, and beer. And kiddie pool reviews. And a lot of times, other random stuff as well. Guys. Guys, Delton filled up my kiddie pool today. Can you believe this? I have a kiddie pool. My backyard has a pool. The Desperate Times backyard garden is now seaside. I don't think it's seaside. Do I need to go throw salt in the pool? (laughs) It is lakeside. I have a pond. I have a swimming hole in my backyard. And it is ice cold. So I had Delton fill it up this morning. So hopefully in the 77 degree weather, it warms up a smidgen. Before I, I hope to get in about six o'clock tonight if it's not negative 15 degrees still. The good thing about having a pool in the back is you can sit with just your feet in or you can dive in belly first or back first. You don't want to dive in head first. That'd be painful. Oh, you probably don't want to dive in belly first in this either. <laughs> it's like eight inches deep. I mean, but hopefully the weight distribution, you would just slap um, against the surface tension and then you go first. Nope. nope. <laughs> I'm OK. Thanks. But right. I'm so excited, guys. I've been trying to get this pool for over a year. Now I just got to wait for it to heat up. If Worst case scenario, it's not heat up by tonight. Then it has all day tomorrow as well, and I can bask in the glory of my swimming hole late tomorrow afternoon and be toasty, warm, cool, and amazed at the same time. Yeah, the nights have been getting fairly cool in the 60s with the daytime. Today's going to be the warmest day of the weekend, I think, at like 77. So I would think by like five or six o'clock, once the sun stops hitting it, it'd be the perfect time to jump in Yes. while I'm doing yard work. (laughs) I can sunbathe. Exactly. So let's start with this first beer here. This is from Anthem Brewing Co., who I've always said is my favorite of the Oklahoma brewing companies, but I haven't had them in a long time because I felt like their lineup hadn't changed in a long time because it really hasn't. However, I still think everything they do is solid and they've got some good Belgians. Well, this is a new beer from them called Prophets of Haze. It is a hazy IPA coming in at 6.2% alcohol by volume. On the side, it says soft and juicy, bursting with aromas of tropical fruits and bright citrus and hoppy flavors. And it's brewed right in downtown. So let's give this a smell. Mm. It just smells bright, fresh. It smells like a pineapple. It kind of does, yeah. Maybe like some mango. Ooh, mango. Yep. It's got a nice haze to it. It's a, a, a good, not a bright yellow, a little bit a little bit toned down yellow color. Not dark enough to be amber, but not light enough to be truly yellow. It's like gold. It looks as hazy as pineapple juice. It really does. It smells good. It's a nice amount of carbonation that's not too much. Feels consistent the whole way through the drink, but it's got a nice brightness about it, like immediately. It has the aftertaste of the orange rind. Like, not necessarily an orange meat, but, like, the rind yeah, of it. I get a little bit of bitter. Yes. And even then, the hop flavor in this isn't too pungent for a hazy IPA. It's pretty toned down. You still get citrus. You still get that, you know, mango, pineapple, orange kind of fruit about it. But it's very, it's very bright, but it's also very clean in that. Yes. It's got a good drink, a good finish. I mean, honestly, it's just a solid hazy IPA. It's real good. I like it a lot. I just... I like Anthem. I like what Anthem does. I always have. And I'm glad that they've got a good hazy IPA now on the menu. I'm crazy for this hazy IPA. Well, we haven't been 
up to too terribly much the past two weeks, I feel like. So I got tendonitis in my foot. It's true. From the skateboard Delta gave me for our anniversary. Yep. Damn near 30. Now I have to go have physical therapy due to three hours on a skateboard. I also gardened. I planted my onions and my scallops. Scallops? Not scallops. Uh, what are they called? Scallions? Scallions, not scallops. I don't plant sea creatures. There you go. <laughs> my scallions. And I planted uh, some of my summer veggies. We're going to see if they go ahead and pop up. But we already have a little bit of spro- sprouty sprouts of yeah. our spinach. We have sprouty sprouts of our radishes. And we are looking forward to a bountiful season. We should have some good vegetables coming out of the garden. I've already harvested a lot of spinach, a lot of turnips, and a, quite a bit of romaine lettuce. Not a bad thing, because we eat a lot of romaine lettuce. And dude, romaine lettuce, that lettuce survived the snowpocalypse where it was below freezing for two weeks straight. And it came out the other side, blossomed, bloomed, and grew into beautiful heads of lettuce that we can now enjoy. Oh yeah, it's the, it's the greatest. Because we use them for lettuce wraps, we use them for Caesar salads, because Follow Your Heart has a delicious vegan Caesar dressing that's nice and peppery. We also use it for random gifts to put in our friends' mailboxes. Yep. We drop off vegetables, say, here you go, here's some lettuce. There's no nutritional value, but you'll like it. Uh, uh, there, there is some vitamin A in that there, There lettuce. is a minor amount of nutritional value, but you'll like it. There you go. <laughs> I, I only do the leafiest of the greens, the greeniest of the leaves. There you go. And it is delicious, nutritious, mm-hmm. and free. Perfect. Uh, me think last Sunday, so a week from this episode, I got my second COVID shot. So I am officially fully vaccinated, 5G active tracking chip inserted. We are good to go. Vaccinated, motivated. Vaccinated, motivated. Allergy medicated. There was another. uh, Vaccinated, motivated, allergy medicated, caffeinated, educated. Yeah. I was trying to think of something to do with like GPS. Agitated. No, I I was making a joke on the tracking device, ah. and I just my brain can't think of destinated any uh, close enough destinated. <laughs> All right, we got it. We freaking got there. Um, aside from that, I, I watched a butt ton of movies. I know I talked about this last episode too, but a lot of Korean horror films. Uh, not horror films. There's been a few, but I've been watching a lot of Korean films, mostly in the horror, but thriller and suspense genre. Really, 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 really enjoying those movies. Now, given I'm watching ones people say to watch that are highly rated, so there is that. I'm not going in just finding any movie. I mean, it's the same thing in the United States. If you watch something people say is good, you're probably going to enjoy it. I've been doing that and have been absolutely loving some of these films. So, very happy with that. And while he does that, I sit in the dining room and do watercolor. It takes me about an hour and a half to do a seven-minute tutorial, but by God, I am watercoloring. And at that point, I get my, uh, get scared. Get my, my spooks on. Get his spooks on. We're doing it. And I get my relaxation on. So Delton was talking about, like, so me, I, I can't stand horror. I don't like thriller. And I was asking Delton, like, why he likes horror films. I told her that the thing that I enjoy so much about, I've been getting into, like, classic horror films. Uh, I don't think I've brought this up. Maybe I have. But, uh... In the be- toward the beginning of March, I sat down in a week and watched a ton of classic horror films for the first time. Cronenberg's uh, The Fly from the 80s. I watched Eraserhead. I watched Nosferatu from 1922. I watched the orig- original Night of the Living Dead. I watched Halloween for the first time. I watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time. Killer Clowns from Outer Space for the first time. Alien for the first time. All these classic horror films. And so I've been diving into the horror genre a lot more. Now I'm watching a lot more 
um, a lot of newer films that I find really good. But what I enjoy so much about horror is I feel that horror films more than any other genre out there is the only one that can truly add a feeling of suspense and like an unsettling anxiety in their movies. And I mean, you watch anything, a lot of even just suspense films that are supposed to be suspenseful. I never feel that. I never get that. It doesn't happen as much. But if you watch a really good horror film that has you anticipating, like you get that feeling of something's going to happen. Like no movies can really do that outside of good horror films. And I, I feel like I always have to preface, I like good horror. I don't like all horror just because that's what it is, because all movies have good and bad. The good horror movies for me are great, and the bad horror movies for everyone are some of the worst movies probably in existence, right? Like a really, 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 really shitty romantic comedy is probably just fine on a day when you have nothing else to watch. But a really, really shitty horror movie is like, wow, this is just garbage. You know what I mean? Yeah. They have a feeling like that for me. But anyway, to Haley's point, or to Haley's story, my point, whatever, they can induce an anxiety and a stress level and just that feeling that I feel like nothing else can induce. I told Delton, that's my baseline everyday life, anxiety and stress. So I need a break. Anything that adds to that, uh, just, no, I, I, my, my idea is I need a break from anxiety and stress. And so that's probably why I don't like horror films or thriller films. Give me something that I've seen 15 times. I know the ending to, and it's happy. And there's someone like Adam Sandler in it. I'm like, gold, let's watch it. Let's go. I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. But give me something where I have no idea who's going to live, who's going to die, who's hiding under the bed. Is there someone hiding under the bed? That, that's just my everyday life of worst case scenario thinking. So I, I kind of need a break for that for my self-care. And that makes sense. And the good thing is, is we can take breaks from life together playing games. Mm -hmm. Oh, here's the door. Uh, uh. It's straight ahead. It's, it's a game. Del, you ever been on a riverboat? I have never been on a riverboat. One time I won a free milkshake on a riverboat. Well, you have to remember, the only time I've seen the Mississippi River was when we drove over it going to Gen Con. That is true. That's the only, well, I guess, I take that back. You've flown over it. Wait, 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 wait. Do we drive over that going to Nashville, or is it further east than Nashville? Uh, yeah, we drove over it. Whenever you first get to Nashville, I believe. I could be wrong. I'm sure the internet will correct. Or is me. it right outside Memphis? <coughs> it's right uh, outside Memphis, Memphis. Memphis. That's it. Because it goes down to uh, New Orleans. Um, no need to correct us, internet. So yes, I've driven over it. That would be once, twice, three times, four times we've driven over it. But I've never actually done anything in the Mississippi. So, like, yeah, but no, I've never been on a riverboat. I've seen them. They look cool. Don't know that I feel like being that person that's like, we're going to go riverboat gambling. So I went on a riverboat in Branson, Missouri, and they was had- Was it on a river or was it in the lake? It was in the lake. Ah. But it was a riverboat. It was like a showboat cruise kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, okay, ask me any question about this boat. And if I can't answer it, you'll get a prize. And, like, people were asking questions about when was it made, how much wood was used. Uh, really obscure things like how many people have worked on this boat in its lifetime, how he have been fired from this boat in its lifetime. This guy answered all of them. And I'm like 12 years old and I raise my hand and I say, how many gallons of paint did it take to paint it? it stumped him. I got a milkshake. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. The next year, because my family goes to Branson every god dang year, yep. the very next year we did the exact same thing. We did stay the same place, went to the same Dixie Stampede show, which is now called the Stampede, which is 
still north versus south, so still problems. But then we went on the riverboat again, asked the same question. He knew it was 33 and a half gallons, so I did not get my milkshake two years in a row. He learned. You should have had your mom ask it, <laughs> so you could have asked a different question. That's true, but I tried. But I did win a milkshake because I asked a question on the riverboat that the guy didn't know. That's pretty awesome. I love that he knew it for next time. He did. <laughs> like, I was so disappointed never, the next year. <laughs> that's probably why he knows so much. He always gives it to the first person, and then that's the thing to learn for next year. And then after like 30 years of doing it, he's like, I've got 30 solid, obscure facts on this boat now. I got some good ice cream. It was a good float. Well, that's good. Or a good shake. A good shake. A good shake on the riverboat. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of riverboats, uh, that's the name of our game for this episode, which is Riverboat, designed by Michael Kiesling. Michael Kiesling, I told Haley, I was like, I don't know that we've played a Michael Kiesling game, which is a dumb thing for me to say because he's one of the designers, I don't remember if it's co-design or not, of Azul. And Heaven and Ale. And Heaven and Ale. Which we have reviewed both of them. We reviewed both. Uh, <laughs> Heaven and Ale is awesome. And then a game that I have never played. However, it's one of those classic late 90s Euro games that is still around named Tikal, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of and potentially even played. But to look at his little thing right here, his top games. Azul is number 50 of all time on Board Game Geek. Uh, Azul's Summer Pavilion is 145, Tikal's 269, Heaven and Ale is 268, Azul's Stained Glass of Sintra is 308, and then he has some game called Vikings I've never played at 438. Uh, I mean, to have six games in the top 500 games of Board Game Geek is pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. I mean, given there's, yeah. there's very few designers that have that, uh, I do know three of these are Azul, and the first Azul is definitely the best, and the third Azul, Summer Pavilion, is definitely the next best. Um, but that's, that's just kind of crazy. That's good. That's like, a only other people to probably say they can, are that way or like Reiner Knizia, Uva Rosenberg, maybe, uh, I don't know who else would be in that. Probably Alexander Pfister and maybe Vital Lacerda or like some of the few people that have Stefan Feld. Eric Lang. Eric Lang probably is now like there's, there's several people, but it's not a lot. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm going to put my beer down now. While I, I finish mine because you know I got less. I'm going to keep it. So, yes, the designer of this game is Michael Kiesling. Uh, it, it says redaction. What's the German for redaction? Is that like editing? Oh, I have no idea. I don't either. Alex Jaeger and Gregors Kobila. That looks to be a very Czech name. I don't know how Zs are pronounced in Czech names. So I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> uh, sorry, Gregor. Uh, illustration is my favorite illustrator slash graphic designer in board games, which is Clemens Franz. So Riverboat is a game all about you living in the north of the Mississippi River, getting your vegetables grown, harvesting those vegetables, putting them on a riverboat and sending them south to New Orleans to sell and make you a profit. I can now float my vegetables from one side of the patio to the other. Uh, do, you, do you mean <laughs> one eighth of the patio to the second eighth of the patio? <laughs> I can. That's pretty much it. But hey, kitty pool. you really can. Toot toot carrots. So Riverboat here is a Euro game all about planting vegetables and then doing some other little mechanics throughout. For a basic overview of the game, you're going to start off. The game has four different rounds and each round is composed of five phases. Those five phases are all listed through graphical depictions of what happens on these little tiles. So there's five tiles. And I really like the very beginning. You actually do a draft of those five tiles where someone takes one. If you have that tile, you get a benefit no one else gets. And you get to go first 
during that phase of the round. And I always really like that. It's something that Puerto Rico sort of does. Same with Rising Sun, where it's like, I'm picking this action. But instead of that being the action you do right then and there, it's when that action comes around, you get a benefit and you get to go first. And I really like that in games. I mean, first of all, it's sort of a little bit of a draft. So you get to choose. You might get something different. Someone could take what you wanted, like I did with Haley in the last round. And I've always enjoyed that in games, that kind of drafting for this special benefit. And as me and Haley were discussing before the podcast, there's something about getting a benefit and getting to go first in something you chose that feels good, even though everyone gets a benefit and gets to go first in something. I like that. I think it activates our inner five-year-old who's like, yeah, first in line. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. And I'm completely here for it. After you draft all of those, you have five phases. You have cultivation, where very much like Kingdom Builder, You're going to be revealing eight cards from a deck. They tell you which of the five areas of your board you can place one of your 13 workers. You will place eight workers on that board, and that will be the cultivation phase. You go to planting, where you simply remove those workers, put a tile down that has some corn or pumpkins or potatoes or beets or wheat down on your board, put the workers back on it, and you have now planted things in your field. You can then harvest and ship in the third phase where you pick up your workers, put them back in your pool, and buy river boats to ship your goods. And that is the cost of how many workers. So there's boats ranging from a cost of one to a cost of seven. So you have to remove that many workers to be able to buy that boat. Uh, Those boats give you different rewards, basically, and there can also be points toward the end of the game, depending on how well you do. You then have the opportunity phase where you basically get a goal card that you may activate at a later time. And then the scoring phase where you score points based on things you've done in the game and also have a chance to activate scoring cards and some different other scoring things. So the game has those five simple phases. Basically, you are choosing where you're going to plant. You are planting things. You are removing those vegetables in the form of picking up workers, putting in your pool, buying a boat, picking up goal cards, and scoring points. So all in all, once I learned the game, which the rulebook seemed, you know, it's a 14-page book, but the first bit of the rules after setup starts on page four. Then with all the imagery, by the time I read it, I was like, oh, this really isn't that bad. And then by the time I taught it now, I think I could teach this in like, I could probably teach the whole game in five to 10 minutes. Yeah, I I think it took you about 15, 20 minutes to read the rule book and set everything up. And then it only took about 15 minutes to teach me. And then we played in an hour and three minutes. Yes, the box says about 90 minutes, which I'm sure at a four player count is accurate. But... With just me and Haley, and even being our first play, yeah, an hour and three minutes and like 17 seconds, I think it timed out to. And it's really not that difficult of a game. That was my first thing was, it's not overly complex. It's easy to understand what's happening, how things are done. I have always touted how much I love Clemens Franz artwork, not only because it's simple and just kind of lighthearted, but I find that his graphical representations of actions and what, like, What's this action based on this symbol? They make the most sense to me. And maybe that's because I'm used to seeing them because I seek, I don't necessarily seek his games out, but he's on a lot of games I like. So when it shows this little symbol, it just makes sense. I I enjoy that about him. So with those five tiles of the phases, it's really easy to look at them and be like, okay, so here's the bonus. And then here's what we're doing. Here's another extra thing. And then here's your little, you know, you can spend a coin to break the rule by doing this. I feel like you do so much in 15 minutes because that's all each round took. Like there's four yeah. rounds. We did it in an hour. It took 15 minutes per round. And so that's what, three minutes per tile? 
basically. It, 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 didn't, it moved really quickly. It did. The game is not overly complex. It's not overly hard. But there's still plenty of decision space and plenty of, like, there's a little bit of randomness with which, which vegetables come out, which cards are flipped of where you're putting your uh, people on your board to cultivate your land, and even which objective cards are out. But something I was telling Haley I really enjoyed was that no matter what, you can always spend a coin. Now, coins are worth one point at the end of the game, but you can spend a coin to look through the pile of the face down, like, uh, vegetable tokens and pick which ones you want to plant. You can spend a coin to ignore the fact that someone bought the, the level five boat and go through the pile to find the other level five boat instead. You can spend a coin to dig through the objective deck and pick what you want rather than selecting from the four that are out. So I really like that even though someone takes what you may have wanted or you passed on an objective early and now you regret it, you can always, always, always spend that coin, go in there and dig it out. And I really like that because it made it feel like choices that could be seen as mean or spots in the game that could feel like, well, you beat me to it and now I'm just screwed. If you really want it bad enough or if it's worth enough points to you, you can spend that coin, lose that point to potentially gain like, you know, six more. You are just trying to downplay the meanness of the game after you took the last riverboat action that I wanted. You had the riverboat action three turns in a row how many times did you rounds. have the extra player action the extra pawn uh, extra I, I took that i think all four all four because the one time Tell i left more it about that the one time i left it available you didn't take it because i went for my <laughs> boat first because i had a strategery and i took your boat and you took something else i know but he's trying hey, to downplay listen, listen. to break the no, fourth no, 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 wall no. he's trying to downplay no. the meanness of the game after his actions revealed that he's a meanie H Haley won it was obvious <laughs> it was obvious she was gonna win all I did taking that was try to give myself a closer second. I think I lost by how many was it? Like 14 points or something? Uh, I had 158. And I had 141. Something like that. Yeah, so, so 151 uh, like 17, 17 points. points. Not bad. If I would have if I would have gotten everything I wanted, if I wouldn't have screwed up at the end, I would have had 14 more points from that, but it would have given me like six less points. I think I would have still been like 10 points behind. So I really wouldn't have been a big benefit. I knew I couldn't win because you were so far on the Harvest Master track. So in this game, you have this little Harbor Master that you get to move through different things. And um, this game has elements of you wanting to be the best at something. So the Harbor Master, whoever is the furthest along the tr Harbor Master track on their own board, gets full points for every boat that they've acquired in the third phase throughout the three rounds of the game. Everybody else gets half points from that point on. And you only get points for where your harbor master is and behind him. Any boats you have ahead of him, you will not get points for if he's not all the way up there. So Haley pushed her harbor master really far, really fast. And I just knew I was never going to catch up all the way. So I just had to get far enough with high point boats, even sacrificing getting more boats for higher point boats because I knew I was going to be further behind. And I just still couldn't catch up. But I enjoyed that about it, that it kind of has a race aspect for it. And then there's this weird thing where you can take your workers out of your pool and put them in the central board. They stay there the whole game, but they're points at the end of every turn of the four phases. And they provide a bonus for whoever's the most, the second most, and the third most at the end of the game. So there's a couple of those like trying to outplay your opponent, trying to have more of something than your opponent, which is always sort of a fun thing in a game especially when there's like two of them, each are worth a good amount of points. I find that to be nice. 
Yeah. And, you know, like Delton said, the theme of the game is Riverboat. And something that I I appreciate, and this is my, like, Delton and I have a very white person cultural lens. And so, yeah. like, we're, we're coming at it from this point of view. It could, could not be a good thing. But uh, in, in the rule book, it has a disclosure. I can uh, read it. Yeah, you want to read it? Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the rule book, it has a little disclosure. Throughout the rule book, it's got flavor text from uh, Mark Twain in a book. I mean, there's a couple of people, but they have a Mark Twain book called uh, Life on the Mississippi. And they have a few things from it. But at the back of the rule book, it says, Games, like history, sometimes will adjust focus to better fit a specific narrative. We offer this game as a celebration of the positive elements of life and business along the Mississippi River, while freely acknowledging that we have taken care to use our location and crops in such a way to avoid addressing the very real and abhorrent existence of slavery as part of early to mid-1800s agricultural commerce in the United States. Our use of Twain for romantic color does not discount other writings from Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth about the narrative and of actual history, and the inquisitive player is encouraged to investigate the original source material from the period far more thoroughly and accurately than we could here. And I appreciate them putting it in because... Like in Puerto Rico. I love Puerto Rico. But it's the workers. But what are the workers? Yeah. And so it completely, one, whitewashes it, but two, doesn't acknowledge the history. I at least appreciate that this rule book acknowledges the history, mm-hmm. but doesn't use the history as a pawn in the game. It's yes. almost like a, like it's it's inspired by the riverboat, and but it doesn't use uh, enslaved people as like pawns in the game. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, but again, they didn't ignore it. Yeah, I like that. I like, I I think my favorite aspect of that is they're trying to celebrate the positive elements of life and business because that was a huge part for the commerce of the United States. And it's a piece of history we can't ignore. Huge part of Abraham Lincoln's life. Yes, (laughs) and they acknowledge there were dark sides to it and bad things. And I'm glad that they said, you know, we're going to make this game to be a positive reflection focusing on the narrative of here's the things that were good, but there were, and I love the use of the term abhorrent because that's one of my favorite terms because when you hear it, you know they understand because I feel like abhorrent is the worst and most disgusting things. So when they yeah. use that, it's not just like it was a bad thing. Like they like, no, this was it, atrocious. It feels this like was they, horrendous. Exactly. This was... It feels like they understand the weight of what they're saying, and I'm glad that they encourage you to look outside of the game if you really want history. And now I still have mixed feelings about, you know, using historical topics like this with very dark, disturbing, um, exploitative themes. Yeah. Like I still have mixed feelings about the theme. I I still do. But I appreciate what they did in the rule book. Definitely. It's hard. It's hard to find a balance, I feel, because you either have to, a game is either going to acknowledge it or not, but they're going to make it the nice light clean or you're going to have a game that acknowledges it and does poorly and uses it as a part of the game in a bad way. Or the final version is you're going to have a game that acknowledges it, utilizes it, but in doing so is somehow making it a lesson, which is still a touchy version. Or they use it and do not add any historical context like Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yeah. That's the bad version. That's the one where it's like, yeah, they're not acknowledging it and they're also making it, they're just ignoring it completely. They're not acknowledging. I don't know. It's it's a hard space. I it's I feel more difficult. And given this could be anything, and I may be completely off base. I feel like anything about American and uh, the Americas history 
is just tough to do correctly when you're dealing with subjects outside of, I, I guess, any subjects like, I don't know, pre-1950s maybe, pre-1970s. It's just tough. It's hard whenever you're making a board game about it because there's so much connected to our history that is so right. dark that needs to be thought about. It needs to be acknowledged yes. without being exploited. Yes, thank you. See, That's... I can't think on my head of good words like you can. I just start <laughs> babbling, and well, hopefully it's coming across. My job is paraphrasing and reflecting what people say. So, <laughs> well, well, thank you for taking my ideas and making them concise. I need to cut all my jabber out and just no, put what you have. No, no, it was good. You had a good explanation. Um, but yeah, it, I I think that this is on the right. And again, this is coming from my white person perspective. Yeah, like it's it's doing a better job than most games of explaining what happened without exploiting what happened. And so it's and the theme of the game is not uh like Puerto Rico. Um, but I, I appreciate because I think if they would have left out that spot like, hey, you know, we're taking like a a light version of what happened. It's yeah. It's not meant to ignore the history. Here, if you want to learn more about the history, read up here, but at the same time not using that history for fun. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's good. It's hard. It's one of those things we've talked about a lot that theme matters and the way it's presented matters. And I think it's becoming uh, more and more important in gaming, which is why when it happens really well, we point out that this is really, really well done because they did this, this, this. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's just tough. Board games are tough when you have a historical theme. They should just do the Branson showboat and then you have to yeah. earn your milkshakes in order to prosper. Deal. There you go. <laughs> Fixed it. Well, aside from thematic uh, concerns, which we did want to bring up, uh, I've I've really enjoyed this game. Like the more we're talking about the game itself, the gameplay, my thinking of like my decision spaces, where I messed up, how I know it, how I felt during the game, how quickly it played, how simple it was to teach, all of that combined, I really like this game a lot. Yeah. Um, I came out of it saying, oh, this is a good game. But the more I talk about it now, the more I'm like, huh. You know, I'd like to play this with so-and-so. I'd like to play this with four people. Just because I enjoyed the experience, I find that it combines elements of several different games together that I've always enjoyed. Uh, like, I like the drafting in the beginning. I like the sort of action selection, you know, choosing that you're going to go first in a phase. I like the fact that you can spend a coin to kind of break through the rules a little bit and choose things that are technically no longer available. I just like all that stuff so much put together and the way it all worked. It was easy to understand. I just really liked the game. Can I ask a question kind of throwing back to last podcast episode? Absolutely. So with the last one, like it was also a, you know, vegetable planning game. But I feel like last time we had a lot more AP than this one. Like this one, I felt like yes. we went really quickly. Why do you think that is? Is it because um, I yelled at you? No. Uh, <laughs> I actually felt that you took longer on your turns generally than I did this time. I think so. Um, part of it is it's, you know, we played it noon on a Saturday where I'm awake. I got to sleep in a little bit. Uh, that definitely helps. And it was after a good meal. But I think something about when this game is broken down into so many phases and the phases are done simply. So I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. In At the Gates of Loyang, it was like, all right, first you have this phase. You do this, 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 this. Then you have the cards that come out. Well, now we're going to put these cards out, choose what cards to play. Now you have to feed your people. You can buy and sell. There's like 30 things to do during your turn, and then you pass it. In this one, it was, okay, first you draft these, pretty simple. 
Then you're going to draw cards off the top of this deck and place your workers in that color. Okay, that's pretty simple. If you want to put a, a, a three vegetable in one tile that gives you some bonus points, you put three in that triangle if you can, or you spend a coin to move one, whatever. So that was easy. Then you go to the second phase where you place your vegetables. It's like, well, you've got a pretty limited selection. You're only going to spend a coin if you're like, I need this here. I felt like breaking it into phases makes things way easier because those phases are so specific in what you're doing. Yes. And the fact that when a phase happens and you do everything on your board, it's not like, all right, you have 13 workers, place them. It's you have 13 workers, you're going to place them in a color we tell you, you just get to choose within that color. So ah. I feel like it's forcing you to have a smaller scope with each decision. More constraints. More constraints for each action, each thing. So you're constrained with what you're picking from. And some, if, if we're drafting from the five and you take the three for the boat, I'm going to take the one. You're going to take the four. I'll take the two or the five. And then you take the last one. Cool. I've only made two decisions of the five. You know, it's fairly simple. And then you're placing 13 people out. And yes, you're putting down, okay, hey, this goes in the white zone or this goes in the yellow zone. But the yellow zone's like seven or eight tiles, maybe nine. That's not hard. That's a very small decision space, you know, whatever. You want to group stuff together, easy. And so when the decisions are there, they're impactful, but they're small, and there are constraints around them. So I feel like that makes it so much easier to make a decision. Yeah. I don't know. Just something about this game clicked with me. I really liked it. I had fun with it. I felt the decision space was good. I didn't feel hindered by the randomness. I felt the randomness was good because you could then break the randomness by paying that coin if you have it. I, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I just enjoyed it a lot. So I'm glad I didn't have as much AP. We got it done in an hour. I bet yeah. me and you could probably get it down to about 50 minutes. I believe in us. For sure. Uh, I want to play it with four. Yeah. I do. I feel like it was a good game and I feel like I need another beer. That sounds good to me. So yes, I'm going to say I freaking recommend. I feel like we never say if we recommend something or not lately. But I really like Riverboat. If you like these kinds of games, Euro games about farming and stuff, I just think this is a really good one. Now I get more beer on this one, Delton. Well, I don't see your glass near me, so... Excuse me. That, you can have a little more beer as a treat. Thank you. All right, so before we get into the question of the episode, let's go over this beer. This is from Tupps Brewery out of Texas. And it smells like coffee. It smells like rich, glorious coffee. It legit smells like coffee. Uh, this is their Dive Bar Brunch Imperial Stout brewed with cold brew coffee, coconut, and cacao nibs. Like Actually, it literally the- doesn't even smell like truck stop coffee. This smells like, yeah. oh, I'm going over to my grandma's house, and she has some old Folgers in a coffee cup, and it is legit. It no, is th- warm. It this is smells, toasty and delicious. This smells much richer than crappy Folgers. No, but like when you have Folgers at your grandma's house, it tastes better. I never had coffee at grandma's when I was a child. I didn't get coffee as a child, Haley. What? You're an enigma. They shouldn't have given you that. (laughs) That's what it is. If you're not drinking coffee by the time you're four, then (laughs) you won't grow up. Anyway, so this is a 9.8% alcohol by volume. This brew will remind you of the local bar around the corner where you sing karaoke The bartenders know your name, and you meet new friends every time you walk in. Pairs perfectly with stories from the night before. Has an SRM of 50? Have no earthly idea what that means. Mainstream. Thank you. And an IBU, International Bittering Units, of 30. It says it is a 5 out of 5 on body, roast, and color, a 2 out of 5 on bitter, and a 3 out of 5 on sweet. And a 10 out of 10, and amazing. So this is one of those... 
stouts that is black as night, and it's not black and thin either. It's thick enough that you can't even see light coming through the other side of the glass. It looks like espresso. It does look like espresso without the creaminess, except for the top. It smells like coffee. You can smell the cocoa. And it tastes like coffee. It tastes like coffee. Like if you were to put like coconut oil in a cup of coffee, that's what it tastes like. It's like you took a couple dark chocolate chips, put them in a coffee cup, threw a little bit of coconut flavor, and then poured a nice hot eight ounces of coffee on top and let that chocolate melt in. That's what this tastes like. We should totally do this. Totally do this after the podcast episode. I would rather just drink this beer. (laughs) (laughs) Why not both? This will put me to sleep at a 10% beer, basically. Let's go lay in our kiddie pool, bask in the sun. Yep. This is really good, though. So that's, uh, shoot, I can't remember the names of these beers. They're too elaborate. Tup's Dive Bar Brunch from Tup's Brewery. Very, very good. Well, with that, let's move into the question. Actually, the topic. The topic. Oh, my. your roll, Hopscotch. Sorry, that game talk took longer than I thought. (laughs) All right, let's go to the topic. You're going to be editing forever. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So the topic for today is farming in games. We wanted to just bring up that a lot of games are farming. There's a lot of planting and harvesting vegetables and kind of talk about why we think that is. So why I think it is is because, one, farming is compatible with a lot of the mechanics in board gaming. I mean, think about gaming as like planning ahead, resource management. I mean, you have to, one, plan ahead because a lot of times, uh, I'm thinking like Agricola. I'm thinking of, of course, the game we play today. Sometimes you have to wait multiple turns, multiple rounds in order to harvest your crops. You have to plan ahead, uh, sometimes when it comes to cultivating and buying seeds. And so with gaming, you know, some games you have to kind of build on turn by turn by turn by turn, especially a lot of the Euro games. There's especially a lot of resource management. If you don't have the land space, if you don't have the seeds, if you don't have the nutrients in order to grow the fields, then you can't grow that crop so you have to do a lot of resource management a lot of planning and so i think that's why you see so much farming in games because it's an easy theme that fits well with a lot of mechanics delton i think that makes a lot of sense because every farming game you have it is built on how are you managing your time your resources and things like that riverboat sort of takes a different approach than most because like the other day we did at the gates of loyang we've talked about agricola I mean, hell, you kind of have farming in Catan if you consider, like, gathering or, like, trade goods as part of that. And Oh My Goods. Yeah, Oh My Goods is just an interesting card-based version of that. I mean, you've got games like Edo. Uh, What other games are focused on gathering food and trading food around? I mean, there's so many of them. It's just hard to keep track at this point. But there is something about it. And I, for me personally, I think that part of the reason that farming or resource gathering or like food gathering and food as trade item is so popular is because every single culture, civilization, and people in existence in this world that ever has been since we stopped being nomadic and settled down in the Fertile Crescent, there's been farming. People have grown and eaten vegetables. They have grown and traded goods. I mean, you got to look at like the Silk Road. They traded not only you know, things like silk, but spices were one of the biggest commodities. And that's something you grow and harvest. You look at, I believe, and I could be completely wrong. So internet, correct me if I am. But at some point, cannot remember the name, a Germanic tribe might've been the Goths or the Ostrogoths. I don't remember now. It's been too long, but they, they took Rome. 
from what I remember, part of the reason they took Rome was all of the spice because spice was like worth its weight in gold, essentially. It's it was the spice pe- of life. It was pepper, from what I remember. It was like that long grain European pepper or long grain pepper that we don't get here. We don't have it. You'd have to buy it specialty. But I mean, it was huge. Every culture ever has traded goods that are either hunter gatherer or we farmed this. That's That's just how it's been. So I think that it's something that everyone understands. Everyone has seen it. Everyone has taken part in it, whether it's consuming the final product or actually planting yourself if you have lived with a farmer or in a farming community. So I think it's just something that is so familiar and it's part of everything. So you can literally take any part of the world at any time frame and make a game based on them farming. And so, yeah, I think a combination of, just like you said, it's been a part of our, our everyone's culture for so long. Everyone's familiar with it. Everybody knows the concept of farming, even if we're not farmers. And also just fits so well with so many board game mechanics. Do you think of any other board game mechanics it fits with? I mean, really anything. I mean, you could have, generally it's, you know, very like resource management heavy. Trade. Games. But yeah, any games that you're trading things is big. Um, I would think limited supply. Because if you think yeah. about it, like, the, the government only allows uh, so many seeds or so many acres, um, depending on your contract. Well, I guess they did until the 70s. And so, like, if there's a limited supply or even flooding the market, there's probably some stand, some things in place to keep us from flooding the market. That's true. I mean, there's all kinds of regulations in real life that could be, you know, put into game, the game world. Given most of the farming games, the focus on that are of a historical context. Or at least... Like in terms of Agricola, they're a faux historical context, right? Mm-hmm. They're, hey, let's make this sort of medievalish, or hey, let's put this in like the 1800s or older. And you're not finding any modern day farming games where you have a $3 million tractor that you're driving around dropping seeds <laughs> and pulling the combine blades behind. Like that's just not a thing that we do in games because to, I, I think part of it is that takes away the charm of farming. I'm going to say yet. We haven't seen it yet. I'm sure we're going to, and there's probably thousands I've missed. But that's one of the things, too, is when you see farming and you're playing a game, you want it to be this farmer's got a family. He's his kids are working the fields, bringing in, you know, they're like my dad out picking cotton to make money or, you know, just your dad's family, the board game, basically. But that's what you want to think of. Right. You want to think of a family. You want to think of someone who owns a farm and it's they're paying these workers The romanticized version. It is. It's a romanticized old version. You don't want the modern yeah. Super and, business industrial version. And not even like the the negative parts of it. You want the no. romanticized like positive. Positive side of it. I mean, it's like my grandma with her garden. You want that on a mass scale, right? Mm-hmm. My grandma goes out every year. The lady's 91, 92? She'll be 92 in July. Oh, she's outlived grandma in June. June. Or out- outlived grandpa. Good for her. She'll be my oldest grandparent and the only one left alive. So there you go. Definitely oldest. Um but yes, she grows a garden every single year. Tomatoes, onions, the best cucumbers that she makes into the most phenomenal pickles. She's always had a garden, and that's what you want your board game to be. You want it to be that little old lady going out with her glasses and her little little old lady shoes, and she's picking the vegetables and taking them into the town center to trade at the farmer's market, right? And even then, it's still a romanticized version because like, yes. your grandma grew it out of necessity for years. Absolutely. And now it's just kind of like what you do. And so I think with with farming, like you said, it, we we want we don't want the new age farming. We don't want yep. the 
um, this is terrible and hardship for me. What the, oh, this is fun. Look what I can grow. It's like me whenever I show you, look, doubt, my radishes are sprouting. We want that kind of farming. We don't want yeah. the, uh, I have to grow this food to feed my family or I'm being exploited for my labor. We want the fun, cheery, happy concept. And I think part of that is that feels like something we could achieve, right? Mm -hmm. You going in the backyard, planting these, and now we look back there and you've got lettuce growing and you can go pick it and we can literally wash it off and eat it for dinner. That's what you want to feel in a board game. You want to feel like I could grow these vegetables and take them to the gates of Loyang. I could grow these vegetables and hop on a riverboat and go sell them in New Orleans. This is something that could have happened. I could have done this in that time. And I think that's part of it because that is an accessible and yes, again, romanticized, but that is a legitimate like thing that could happen versus modern commercial farming that is the most common where people have $3 million tractors that they literally sit in there, hit autopilot, and they just make sure nothing goes off the rails. And it literally starts on the outside of their farm that they've mapped out through GPS and works its way to the center. They don't even have to steer. People have that technology that's not appealing. That's not something anybody can do. And I think that's part of it is farming is just something everyone can do because everyone at some point has had a Chia pet. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's grown something so they know that feeling and it's just ramping that up to a game. I am putting a challenge out to our listeners. I do think sure. we should have a John Deere tractor programming game. So you guys get on it. A game that programs your tractor to be able to harvest oh. your field. You realize how good this could be, right? It's yeah. a programming game where first you have to plow. Yeah. Then you plant seed. And there has to be something where like if it's unplowed ground, the seed plants half as much. Like you start off with 100 points and then you lose points as you go. Just like you start yeah. off with like a estimated productivity yeah. in your field. And like as you go on, if you if you miss a spot in your plowing, if you miss a spot in your planting, if you miss a spot in your harvesting, then that's money that you lose. Just like in real farming. Oh, God, that sounds horrifying. Okay, you guys don't do that. We're going to do that. This is mine idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. But yeah, so I mean, I mean, think that kind of wraps up my thoughts on farming as a theme. It just works. There's Every mechanic can be converted to work with vegetables. That's really just the ease of it. And like I said, any theme can work with it. Any person can connect to it. You may hate farming and never want to touch a farming game. I've known someone like that refused to play Agricola because they grew up on a farm and never wanted anything to do with it. But yeah, so I think farming is always going to be a theme in games, and I think it should stay that way because it's fun. It is fun. I mean, I'm biased because I have my little Desperate Times backyard garden with my scenic lakeside view, but I think it's fun. And I think that brings us to the question of this episode. And now, join us for a Malthouse Games podcast special bite-sized question. So the question for today is nice and simple. Haley, if you had to grow and farm one thing and only one thing, and it's something you had to do, what would that thing be? Does it have to be something I can grow already or is it something I can learn? You could learn it. It's basically like if you had a year to learn how to do it or two years or something, and then that was what you had to do for a living, what would the farming thing be? Wheat. I think wheat. Because I can make a butt ton of bread. And beer. And beer. You can make bread. You can make beer. And crackers. I it, can make triscuits. basically bread, but yes. <laughs> wheat thins. I can make wheat thins. There you go. You can make all kinds of stuff with that. What about you, Delty Poo? I think it would be fun to do something a little more specialized. And like, I'm tempted to say hops. Hops are awesome looking when they grow. They're very specific climate. Oklahoma's far too windy. You have to be a lot less windy, a little bit cooler. 
you know, a little more north. That's why like uh like Washington, Oregon is like the prime places right now, I think. But hops would be very fun. I'm very tempted to say hops, but I'm also very tempted to say something like an olive grove. Mm. Only because I love the look of olive trees and olive wood is one of my favorite woods for like kitchen utensils because the oh, look of it. Oh man. And Do from you even what like I, olives? I don't. I hate olives. They're gross. Oh, man. You would grow it for me? Well, I wouldn't grow it for you, but what for I thought me? is commercial. What I thought is, I'm pretty sure if I, re- I read this one time, I think if I was correct, that olive wood is only harvested once the tree stops producing olives. Ah, okay. And it's like after so many years, the tree stops and it no longer produces. So then they harvest the wood. And then at that point, that makes it like very renewable because it takes so long for that. At that point, they can plant new trees to grow more olives. And it's like a big recyclable thing. And I thought that was interesting. All of you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think that that is going to wrap up this question. I want to give a big shout out to our Patreon patrons. I'm going to try to quit calling them backers, even though I just. I'm going to keep calling you, know. you backers. Hi, okay. backers. Okay, fine. But yes, so thank you all so much. Those of you who support us on Patreon at a level in which you get a shout out on the podcast. That's Allison. Alan, Jesse, Catherine, Cliff, and Jennifer. Thank you all so much. You are kind. If you would like to be like them, you can go to patreon.com slash malthousegames. As of right now, we just do different shout-outs, which reminds me, I think I missed the March Twitter shout-out. March was kind of a weird month. Uh, We will make up for this. I feel like we're still in March 2020. It feels like we're in 2019 at this point. Oh, God. But yes, you can go to patreon.com slash malthousegames and see what we're all about uh, make sure to follow us on all social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. You can find me personally at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-K. At Squirrely Geek. Make sure to check out our website, www.malthousegames.com, where we have a real simple website built telling you our favorite games, showing you all the games we've covered on our podcast. And we have a blog that we haven't added to, so that's good. Yeah, I'm going to get there someday. (laughs) One of these days we'll be on top of things. Slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. That helps us out tremendously. Our listens are actually improving, which is a very rewarding feeling, and I'm very happy you all are enjoying our content. Very grateful. We have some episodes in the 400s now, and we're very grateful for that. We have at least a couple over five. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, I can't remember which one it was I saw, but yeah. Yeah, we're we're scooting probably what average three to four hundred right now. I would say two to three. Two to three. Two to three probably is the average. Awesome. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. But yes, thank you guys so much for the support. Exactly. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for tuning in to the Malthouse Games podcast, episode number eighty nine. Make sure to check out Riverboat. Make sure to check out Tup's Brewery if you have access. Anthem Brewery if you have access. Drink good beer. Support local beer. All that good stuff. We're gonna get. I don't know what we're going to do now. I got to get in my kiddie pool, man. You got to get in your kiddie pool. We're going to figure something out. I'm craving a snack right now after these beer. beers. These beer. Uh, <laughs> these beer. Like it's a plural word. These beers. So until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.